millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the House of Pod, a show where we pull back the curtain on the world of medicine, we answer questions about your health, and we interview great guests. I'm Joe, and I'm not a doctor. And I'm Lizzie. And I'm Kaveh. And we're two gastroenterologists. What's a gastroenterologist? You know, the doctors who work with your digestive system. Say like, what? You know, your liver, your pancreas, your intestines. Where now? Your butt, Joe. It's your butt. Oh. And now On today's show, we have Dr. Arga Gonzalez. She's a bariatric surgeon, and she's a writer and a speaker on the topics of diversity, inclusion, and gender equity. We recorded this episode a couple of weeks ago and talked about things like gender inequality in medicine, as well as racial disparities and intersectionality. One of the things we discussed was implicit bias. And what these protests have shown us is that this topic is more important than ever. In this episode, we talk about some of the unjust and unfair practices that we see in the field of medicine, and we plan to highlight more of this in the future as well. And lastly, we want to send our support to everyone out there protesting. Please stay safe, continue to wear a mask, continue to wear goggles, um, and know that many of us in the medical community really support what you're doing, and uh, we're here to help. So, Remember to check us out at Twitter, at The House of Pod. Follow us um, if you haven't already. Please like, subscribe, listen, tell all your friends. If you want to reach us via email, find us at hopquestions at gmail.com. And stay tuned for a great episode. On the show with us today, we have Dr. Arga Gonzalez. She is a national leader in the research of diversity, inclusion, and equity. 
She is also a minimally invasive and bariatric surgeon. She is a scholar in residence at the Stanford University School of Medicine. She's a writer. She's written for Time Magazine, Scientific American, a ton of other journals and magazines. And we're really grateful that she's on the show with us here today. Hi, Dr. Salas. How are you doing? I'm doing, you know, as okay as a person can be doing during a pandemic. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's yeah. our pleasure. Yeah, it's all, it's all COVID uh, related these days. It's all sort of in COVID equivalent terms, how we're doing. Yeah. yeah. You know, I have noticed that people, for a long time, all the content was COVID, all COVID all the time. And have you noticed that now people are starting a little bit to like test the waters and see if there's any appetite at all for non-COVID content? Totally. We, we, have, we are the people you speak of. We are yeah. trying to address other things that are still happening in, in this time. Uh, We've tried, yeah. Jokes. We still think <laughs> fart jokes are funny, so we are but trying it, to trying to mix it up, mix it up we, a little bit. We did get a fart joke in a couple episodes ago. That was a good nice. one. I'm proud of that one. <laughs> um, there are a lot of things to be proud of on our show, but we have been trying to talk about not just COVID, but like how to cope with quarantining, and how you know we talked about um, education and small businesses and things that are not just about. COVID, but how people are being affected by it. I think it's a different um, angle. And especially as doctors, we don't want it because every day, I don't know about you, all we talk about at work is PPE and what to wear and do we have enough and how to prepare for the next wave and or reopening. It's like every day is like mm -hmm. totally a pendulum. Are you finding that as well? Kind of this, um, nothing is consistent in the messaging. It's not right. just, it's everyone, right? Right. There, nobody has any clue what is going on. I don't care if you're the exactly. governor, or you're the president, if you're Tony Fauci, like nobody has any clue what is happening. Barely have a clue what's happening tomorrow, but definitely no clue what is happening. I mean, not barely have a clue what's happening today, but definitely no clue what's happening tomorrow. Right. It's a very strange way to live life. Right. Yeah. Right. No, it's really, it, particularly for people who we pride ourselves on knowing facts and knowing things and relating right. those things right. to patients. It's a really weird time. And we all have yeah. to have like a, take a deep breath and, remember to have a sense of humility about how little we know about what's happening. Mm -hmm. We do. And, you know, patients are like, should I do this next week? What is the risk? And I try to be so honest. I don't know. There's yeah. a risk in delaying. There's a risk in coming to the hospital, you know, or can I go on that vacation with my family in August? People want us to answer these questions. And, you know, I find myself totally, you know, speechless for the first time in my life. Anyway, sorry, enough about COVID. Let's talk <laughs> about why you're here today and what your expertise is. Because um, we've talked on the show, you know, and we think it's so important to highlight how women, you know, are half of all med students, you know, all these graduating classes of med students, at least 50% are women. And yet that doesn't seem to be translating into things like professorships, heads of departments and being chairs. So what is your perspective having you know, researched it and thought about it and lectured about it. What, what do you think is the reason behind that? Some of that stuff? Yeah. I mean, it's like anything else, it's multifactorial, but one thing I always try to point out is that women going into medicine is not actually a new phenomenon. Women have been 45% or more of medical school classes since the late 1990s, which is a long while. It's certainly long enough for people to have ascended to full professorship. Um, if everything went the same for women as it does for men. And clearly we know that it does not. And I think there are, like I said, a number of factors. I think implicit bias plays a part of it. I think explicit gender discrimination plays a role in it. I think maternity discrimination and, and um, motherhood discrimination plays a part in it. <clears throat> I think 
people's expectations of how a woman is supposed to behave are somewhat at odds with how a leader is supposed to behave. And that leads to penalties for women. Either they act you know, kind and nurturing and compassionate, and then they aren't seen as leaders, or they act like leaders, but they're seen to be you know, a five-letter word that starts with B. And so there's not really a, an easy pathway to success um, because of that. There's also, I mean, there's so many things like people make assumptions about what women's priorities are. You know, if they had kids recently, then the assumption is they don't want to go give this talk or they don't want to chair this committee um, when nobody ever bothers to ask that woman in question whether she actually wants to do those things or not. Um, so there are a lot of different ways in which opportunities are um, kind of shunted away from women. Some of it is intentional. A lot of it is not, um, especially if we're talking about modern times and what's happening in 2020. A lot of it is not intentional. It's a byproduct of, you know, still the fact that most leaders in medicine are men and they're sitting in rooms together determining who's going to win an award for a society or who they should have come give the keynote talk. And most of their network is other men. And so who yeah. are they thinking of? the people they know, the person they had a drink with last night, the person they talked to last week, the person who's their co-author on this project, which again, tends to just be men. Um, and so all the cumulative impact is that you're absolutely right. Although there are many women going into medicine, it is very challenging for us to get into the, the titles and, and roles of being president of a society or winning a prestigious award or becoming a full professor or a department chair. Or even getting to be the lead uh, author on articles, it seems like, which doesn't make sense. Why, why is that? Because you would think if, is it the same concept for research as, as it is for some of the clinical side of medicine? Is there any difference between the, the roadblocks in the way for women in terms of more of a research-oriented career versus a clinical career? Yeah, I think in terms of research, we have some insight um, as to what the challenges are there. And one of the things that has been shown, at least in the economics literature, is that uh, women's work um, takes longer to get through the peer review process and the demands put upon them on the revisions tend to be more stringent. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, Erin Hangel is this researcher's name and she did this amazing work looking at the top four economics journals and looking at all the articles that were published over 40, no, sorry, 50 years or so, or might be even more, I don't remember. I think it was from 1950 to 2017, actually, so almost 70 years. And she um, looked at the quality of the writing, and you could argue whether that the measure she used made sense or not, but she looked at, um, you know, who the authors were, the gender of the authors, how long they took to be reviewed, and she compared, in some cases, she could compare a first version to a last version, because um, they have this thing, the NBER, where they post preprint versions. Anyway, what she found was a lot of things, but for women, from their first draft to their last draft, there was significant improvement in the quality of the writing, whereas the same was not true for the men. And from the beginning of their career to the end of their career, women's writing improved a lot and men's writing stayed the same or got worse. And women's work tended to be in review longer. So those are all indications of what the challenges are that women face. We have similar types of data on grant reviews in medicine. We know that um, for women's work to get funded, so if you look at just funded um, applications, so NIH applications, um, the, the ones that were written by women that got funded are ones that had more words about outstanding and innovation and, and et cetera. And you might think, oh, well, so that, that means they like the women's work better. But actually, if you're looking at all the work that got funded, so all the work that met the same bar, why are there more words like outstanding in the ones in the applications from women? It's because they had to be that much better 
in order to get funded. Um, so I'm certain that that same type of thing applies to the um, journal articles. And we're actually, we have a couple of different studies trying to answer that question right now. Like I remember reading something that was in the, in the business world where they would show that people who had a simple name like John Smith would put their name on like a CV. And then like they would change that name to like uh, an ethnic sounding name or to a woman's name. And they show that the exact same CV would then not get taken or picked. Is, is, is that the same sort of concept here? Yeah, I think it's similar. I mean, there've been a m many, many uh, CV studies like the one you described where people take the exact same CV and they just change the name at the top of it and they send it out to people um, to either, and then they track different things. So sometimes they send them out in response to real job ads and then ask or watch and see who gets called back. And the guy gets called back way more often than the woman and the white name, whitish sounding name gets called back far more often than the ethnic sounding name. Um, sometimes they've looked at asking people, you know, how likely they would be to hire the person or how much they would be willing to pay the person. And they're always more likely to hire the, the man compared to the woman and to pay the man more compared to the woman. Um, and that's, again, with the exact same CV. They, um, Shelley Carell at Stanford also did some really great work on um, motherhood. And she has this paper called The Motherhood Penalty. And basically all she did was in some of the CVs, she added in like the hobbies section, she added that they were a member of the Parent Teacher Association. And that is how she indicated to people that this person was a parent. And for men, that gave them a boost. But for women, it right. took down their chances of getting called. Mm. That's so basically, I mean, all of that points to a way that without us realizing it, when we see that some work has been done by a woman, we tend to evaluate it differently. differently. Yeah. And it's the same yeah. thing like with the orchestra, right? That's the big, best classic example that um, orchestras pretending to not select women until they put up a curtain uh, so that they couldn't tell whether the person was a man or a woman. And that increased the likelihood of women getting selected by about 25%. That is wow. the greatest part about like um, musical auditions is, you know, that's one of the few careers, one of the few things. I was thinking about this recently that you actually can do it totally unbiased. And I've heard that that's how a lot of musicians are selected and that you see minorities and women getting more opportunities. But um. I do, I do also remember not just the PTA thing, but learning, I think, honestly, Esther Chu said it, um, that if you just say, uh, do you want to be, you know, a mother or are you a mother? It got you a demerit. And if the opposite was true for a man uh, about fatherhood, that that was totally like, oh, he, we should give him a promotion. We should hire him. He wants to be the breadwinner. This is his role. This is, he's fulfilling his like well, destiny. That's right. men, men who are married and men who have kids are stable. Right. They're seen as, you know, right. capable of commitment and they're stable. Right. But women who are married. Liability. I want to go have kids. <laughs> right. What will we do? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you explain? I mean, you've said it and I think a lot of our listeners probably know, but like, well, how do you define implicit bias and how would that look like other than, you know, what we're talking about, about motherhood, for example? Yeah. So, I mean, generally when people think about bias, they think about two categories, explicit and implicit. Explicit bias are, are the things, biases are the things that you are aware that you believe. So if you're Larry Summers and you think that women aren't good at math and science, that is an explicit bias. Implicit biases are things that we aren't really as aware of, um, as in we do not know that we hold these biases. So if we're the people who are looking at these CVs, and we tend to pick the one that is from that has the man's name at the top. 
but we don't realize that we're doing it because we have like some implicit preference for men. That's what implicit bias is. It's usually like totally unconscious and not intentional. So we've done, um, or there's a lot of different ways. Usually people ask is how do you measure it? And there's not actually a great way to measure it to tell you the truth. But the thing that has the most data behind it is something called the implicit association test, which basically looks at how quickly you associate different terms with each other. So there's, um, for example, a race IAT, they're called IATs. Um, and basically you see black faces and white faces, and then you have good terms and bad terms. And then they ask you and you're clicking keys on a keyboard. So in one trial, it'll say, okay, if you see a good word, click a key on the left. If you see a bad word, click a key on the right. And then you'll do the faces. If you see a black face, click a key on the left. If you see a white face, click a key on the right. And then it'll say, okay, if you see either a good word or a white face, click a key on the right. If you see a bad word or a black face, face click a key on the left. And then it'll switch it so it'll combine good terms and black faces and then bad terms and white faces. And if you have implicit bias, that last set, it'll take you just a little bit longer to associate those sets of terms than in the previous one. And then it'll kind of calculate out what the difference was in those last two trials and then tell you you have some amount of, you know, zero, slight, moderate, extreme bias toward or against one group or another. Um, so when we did, we looked at the IAT for gender and careers and we looked, so the options are male, female, so it's binary, which is an, a limitation, male, female, and then um, career or family. And we looked at the data from healthcare workers over the last 11 years and found that both men and women in healthcare associated men with careers and women with family. And so this is part of why when you know, I as a surgeon walk in a room and I talk to a patient about what their problem is, what the surgical options are. We come to a decision about what they need. They'll still ask me who's going to do the surgery because they don't right. get Don't that. believe you're the surgeon. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you, you talk about these topics with uh, across the, the country to surgeons and I'm sure you've given lots of grand rounds on the subject and you've written about it. How is your work received by your colleagues? And, and uh, you know, we traditionally, I think, at least I traditionally thought growing up, surgery was sort of like a, a white man dominated field. That was like most of the guys you saw, that's what was represented on TV, et cetera. Um, how, how does the world of surgery seem to be taking your, your information, your, your teaching? Um, you know, I give actually most of my, maybe not most, quite a lot of my talks are to not surgeons, um, to other, you know, internal medicine or cardiology or um, pulmonary critical care, you know, any other group of physicians. Um, I don't think they're, they're, that surgeons receive it particularly differently from all these other groups. Basically, there are some people who already know that this exists and they are concerned about it and they, they want to learn about what they can do differently. That's one camp. They're awesome because I don't have to convince them of anything. And they're, they're the ones smiling and nodding and laughing, you know, all the way through the talk. Mm -hmm. Then there's the people who um, hate it, think it's nonsense, don't believe any of it is true. And most of them are not in that room, but the ones who are got dragged there by somebody else. <laughs> and they usually will walk away saying things like, well, that was a waste of time. And I know this because people will tell me, and they tell me that because they're disappointed <laughs> that their colleague had that reaction. 
Oh, 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 I thought you meant somebody came up to you at the end and was like, I'm really disappointed in your terrible lecture. Typically not. No. They, <laughs> but is it because they, they have already written me off as like right. they're not showing up at all. Yeah. But, but they'll but walk it, away and they're talking to their usually it's a woman who ends up telling me this. You know, they're talking to their female colleagues saying, Well, that was stupid. I can't get to sit there for that. Yeah. And then that woman is the one who will come back to me and say how disheartened she was that that was the reaction. And that's how I hear about it. So the third group is the people who don't really know. They're like, I don't know, maybe it's a thing, maybe it's not a thing, let me go find out. And that's who we really have to be talking to in all of these conversations. We're trying to convince the people who are convincible that this is a real issue, that they have a role to play and that they can make it better. Is it telling though that you're saying you're not really speaking to surgery departments and stuff? Are they, are they not inviting you? Is this information that they don't wanna hear? Is that something that maybe- Yeah, that's a fair question. I mean. I'd have to go back and look. It's not like I haven't talked to any surgery departments. Um, no, and I know. Since, since this COVID business, all my talks got canceled. Right. So I, you know, now we're going back into the vault to figure out what happened months ago. But right. um, I think it's probably true that a lot of surgery departments aren't super passionate about this topic. I think that's probably true. But I also think none of these other departments are. Usually what it is is like some group of people or maybe even a single individual who just feels very strongly that this information needs to be at their institution mm -hmm. and if they are in a role where they can influence who comes for grand rounds they invite me to come and i'll tell you the role i play is that i come in i dump a lot of stuff in their lap it's like dropping a bomb and then i walk away and i can do that because no one <laughs> there can you know right. like they, they can't right. have one of their own women faculty get up there and say hey here are all the ways you guys are screwing me over. Right, right, right. right. She's, right. she's going to have a target on her back, so she can't do it. But I can come in and I can do that. And you know what? If you hate me, you think it was a waste of time, fine. I'm going to go back to my life. I'm going to go give the next talk. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Right. So, you, so you're a surgeon. We're talking about that, right? Mm -hmm. And you specifically have, um, have focused in minimally invasive and specifically bariatric surgery. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about... Um, you know, uh, gender bias. We've touched a little bit on minority bias. Um, do these tests apply to um, overweight slash obese people? Because we all know that's kind of the the last frontier that you're allowed to make. I mean, it's not anymore, but there's all these walls. Like you're not, you know, comedians are don't try to avoid racism and try to avoid ripping on women. And people joke that like, you're still like, allowed to- not really, no. But people <laughs> people joke in public like you're still allowed to make fun of fat people. You know what I mean? That's like yeah, the there last is a barrier. That that's like allowed, and it, it's right. not really. But yeah, I, I totally know what you mean. I mean, I don't um, think it is. But like, no, no, you can't no, help being a woman. You can't help being a minority. But like, people just put the blame. It's your fault. You're fat. So it's like okay to teach. You know, we all yeah. know it's not okay. But do your studies or anything that you've read apply to um, overweight people as well? Yeah, actually, there's an IET for weight as well. Um, and what they found, what lots of people have found is that people in healthcare also um, hold implicit bias against people with overweight or obesity. And I just want to make a point real quick about language that um, people, the preference in this community is not to, um, is to use people first language. So we say people with obesity or people with overweight, um, it's a little bit clunkier, but that's acknowledging that they're people first rather than being their disease. Um, so when, when they've done, looked at the IET and had people in healthcare take it, healthcare workers hold implicit biases 
um, against people with overweight and obesity. And there's all these um, stereotypes that I'm sure you're aware of that people with obesity are lazy, that they have poor hygiene, that they're stupid. So an example I usually use when I, I give talks sometimes about weight bias as well. And when I do that, I talk about, this is dating myself a little bit, but Newman, the character Newman from Seinfeld was, you know, overweight. There were pictures of him and they would show him like kind of splayed out on an armchair with a bag of chips open in his lap and chips all over, you know, as though that's how he lives his life. And that's part of his, the image of him as a person with obesity. Um, and if you look, like if you go on Google images and search for memes for obesity, I mean, you find some really nasty things out there. Um, and it's not, back to your point earlier, it's not okay, but it's still out there. And that's one of the things that um, people like the Obesity Action Coalition are really trying to fight. Um, we see a lot of really negative images in the media of people with obesity uh, and there's crazy things they do like they'll write an article about the epidemic of obesity and then they'll have a picture of someone whose head is cut off of the picture as though you know they how would they ever want their head associated with their body you know right. it's so right. bad um yeah. it's really offensive that they do that and they'll often have stock photos of you know somebody who's got a big bigger belly and then they're eating a, a hamburger or cheeseburger and there's like sauce dripping down their face you know like reinforcing all these stereotypes that are um, not really fair to people with obesity. Um, so yeah, it's, it's the same type of thing. And we know that people with obesity also are likely to be paid less and they're less likely to be hired for a job. And, and so they face a lot of that same type of um, negative discrimination. Problem. Yeah. The TV show Shrill does a really good job addressing some of these things if anyone's actually curious. Oh. Um, so look that up. Okay. Thanks. So uh, it sounds like, you know, even in an age where we are starting to sort of accept body positivity, we have a long way to go. Um, let me ask you uh, a different question. You've talked about underrepresented identities, um, but what about those with dual represent underrepresented identities? Like yourself, for example, you're a woman doctor and you're Iranian, Iranian American. Um, is there any data about how that is? Is there any difference? Is it just one? Is it is it cumulative effect? Is it synergistic? How does how does it affect uh, you? Yeah, I I think it's actually exponential. So this is what you're talking about is intersectionality when people carry more than one marginalized identity, um, and I actually think that the the effect is exponential. But we don't really have a ton of data. So if you look at, for example, all the studies on women in medicine, they've almost all been done as man, woman, regardless of anything else. They haven't taken into account disability status or religion or race or ethnicity. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of them is that many of these studies are done by looking people up on the internet. And you know, we can debate whether you can tell someone's gender or not, but you definitely cannot accurately tell their race. Um, and so, or ethnicity. And so when researchers are looking up, say, speakers at conferences or award winners, and they're trying to see who won, or if they're looking up authors of manuscripts, there isn't a great way to tell what their race or ethnicity is without contacting those people, which is often very, very challenging to do. And so most of the data focuses just on men and women. So we're left not really knowing exactly how the quantity, how to quantify the, the impact, but we know that it's definitely there. So yeah. for example, if you look at pay equity, um, you know, women 
it varies a little bit year to year, but make approximately 80 cents to the dollar compared to men, but as a whole. But if you look at Hispanic women or black women, they're down in the 60 something cents, 50 something cents per dollar compared to, to men. So that already tells you that there's an added, added impact yeah. of having a, a second or third um, marginalized identity. All right, I got one last question for you and then we'll let you go. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. But bringing it back to COVID because we can't escape it now, what are you doing nowadays to maintain your mental health? I think it's so hard. Um, when we first went into shelter in place, I think, you know, and obviously for us, we're all three of us in the Bay Area. Um, we were the first place in the country to do it. Um, I definitely went through an adjustment period where I felt like, as Aaron Carroll says, like nothing matters. Um, you know, why should I respond to this email and why should I work on this research paper? Because the world is ending, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, and it was, it was mentally very challenging. So I started um, doing more and more yoga. I've always, I've done yoga for decades, but I just started doing it like probably pathologically so, um, <laughs> but it was really like soothing for me. And it was a thing that I could control. Let me work on this crazy headstand variation and it would distract me from whatever was going on. Um, and I'm still doing that. Um, but some days are better and some days are worse, right? Some days I wake up and I'm like, well, what is this world that we're living in? And some days I wake up, I'm like, Oh, I got stuff to do. I'll take care of it. No big deal. You know? Yeah. I think that's how a lot of us are. It's just like a roller coaster and it's hard to know what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, but I, unlike you guys, I'm not clinically active, um, in my daily life here. As you know, I went to New York for a couple of weeks, but then I came back and I'm not seeing patients. So I'm not dealing with the PPE issues. I'm not dealing with the daily exposure. And I basically, I'm just in this little apartment pretty much all day, every day, except for when I go to the grocery store. So that's a different challenge of right. just being alone all the time. And no, it's a, that is a real challenge. I get a lot of listeners who will send us emails being like, you know, they're like, what can we do to help you guys, you know, and hospital workers, essential workers? You I mean, we feel bad that we're not contributing enough, but the truth of it is, I think we all know we're in a way, we're a little lucky that we, that Lizzie and I get to go to work still. Like mm -hmm. we're doing some things that keep us sort of distracted, even though it's in yeah. the middle of the healthcare pandemic, it's still like, it is nice in a way to have something to do. It's really hard just to be at home. It's mm -hmm. harder than you would think. We also spend our time podcasting. All oh the yeah, time. that helps. Um, yeah, things. but I think too, seeing people at the hospital. So like those two weeks that I was in New York, I was like, oh, this feels like normal life. Yeah. I mean, the things I saw were not normal, but right. going to work and having people there and rounding on patients, I was like, oh, this is normal. Um, we were wearing all this stuff, but like I got to see people. And then I came home and it was really bizarre to just be back in this. I had been, I don't know, four or five weeks, I think before that, that I had been sheltering here um, alone. And then I had like all of a sudden tons of people in my face all the time. Yeah. And then back to none at all, which is bizarre. Where yeah. did you volunteer? I was at a hospital in Brooklyn. Yeah. Lizzie also, uh, went to New York, um, I for did. a week there. Yeah. I went to, to Bellevue where I trained. So it was, uh, it actually felt other than the craziness of COVID, it felt remarkably the same compared to 10 years ago. But, um, <laughs> And very importantly for our listeners, when you do yoga, are you doing it like online or are you just doing your own stuff? This is a good question. Um, I do. So one of the few good things I think that's come out of this pandemic is that 
instructors all over the world are doing classes on Zoom. Right. So um, I have an instructor who I loved dearly when he was in San Francisco, but he left San Francisco, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago. Um, and now he's doing classes from Mexico, um, which is cool. So I do that a couple of days. And then um, there's another instructor who does, she's like a fitness instructor, not so much yoga, but she teaches, um, she lives in Ireland. So I take her class actually several days a week. And yeah. then um, I just joined a studio in Australia because why not? And um, you, you know, got you got Mexico, Ireland, and Australia. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And then yeah. I teach my own class um, Saturday mornings, um, which cool. is free for anybody who wants to take it. I've yeah. seen cool. some of the things she does with her yoga, and it terrifies me. Like I, like I don't yeah. know if the neck is supposed to move in that way. Like. But <laughs> It's Kabe, pretty awesome. You're right. Kaveh also thinks that jogging involves like, like hawking loogies and oh, spitting only because and like I've flailing seen you about. Do it, and you're <laughs> disgusting when you run. It's awful. <laughs> Doctor Doctor Arga Gonzalez, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, it's been a while since we've had um, a, a Persian doctor uh, on the show with me, and it's like been a month. And Lizzie knows that I need to have like at least one uh, er, annually. He needs um, his fix. He needs I need my fix. fix. I need yeah. my fix. So yeah. thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, where can people find you? Where can they learn more about you? Um, where can they read your stuff? Yeah. Um, so my Twitter is at Argavon underscore solace. My Instagram, which is much more yoga heavy, if that's what you're into, is Argavon solace MD. And then um, there's a web page that is in progress, not yet up. I have two YouTube pages though. Um, because why not? Uh, one is for my professional talks and then the other is for my yoga classes. I put all my classes up online for anybody to take them anytime. Cool. Uh, you're awesome. Thank you so much for uh, the work you do. Um, and for, for the stuff that you write, it really is important. And, um, we need to talk about it now during COVID. We need to talk about it in the future. We need to talk about it all the time. So thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Why did you gain all this weight? Why? Yeah, I didn't say you, Lizzie. Why? You. It's not okay if Hushkale. you do it. <laughs> not okay if you do it. The opinions on this podcast are broadcasted for educational and informational purposes only and do not represent the opinions of our employers. These opinions are not intended as a diagnosis, treatment, or as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a local physician or other healthcare professional for your specific healthcare and or medical needs or concerns.
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.